On In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I, of course, am your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show, what's up with Venezuela? How conservatives and liberals have misled you for their own benefit. Also, how Doug Ford's new tuition rules are terrible, not just for students, but for everyone. And I'll be taking calls on that. And later on in the show, Maxime Bernier says his People's Party will do nothing about climate change without realizing how that will only make the migrant crisis that he's so fearful of worse. All that and more coming up in the David Dole Show. But first, what can Canadians learn about the popularity of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and their shared critique of a system that concentrates wealth and power to the top? Joining me to discuss this is Christo Avalis, a postdoctoral fellow in the History Department at the University of Toronto with writing credits in Maclean's, The Globe and Mail, and The Washington Post, and the author of the piece titled The Lesson Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders Have for the Left, Embrace Class Conflict, which you can read on CanadianDimension.com. Christo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, before I get to um, some more pointed questions here, I want to read this uh so you start your piece off with a quote from, from FDR, and I love this quote, and I think it sets the, the stage for this conversation, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. Quote, we had to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, sectionalism, war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. We know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. So that was FDR in 1936, speaking about this, um, essentially this was, this is at a time where he was pushing the New Deal because of labor movements that pushed him to to do that. And now I think we're we're getting to a point now where we're going to have to see leadership like that uh, again. So before we get into any specifics on actual um, uh, politicians, what do you mean when you talk about uh, embracing class conflict? Well, you know, when I speak about that, I mean, you know, the, to, to look at the reality before us and look, and even Warren Buffett, who's, who, who has, you know, kind of famously said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that, you know, uh, you know, class conflict does exist in our society, but he says it's largely, you know, the 1%, the elites, uh, conducting that warfare, conducting the offensive, if you will, and they're winning. So it's more for the left, for me saying to the left, and that you know includes the NDP in Canada and includes you know left-wing Democrats in the United States, um, progressives broadly defined, perhaps. That look, the reality is, is we do have class conflict. It's largely being waged by the rich. The rich have a higher class consciousness than the rest of us, and we need to recognize that this is happening. And rather than say oh, ignore it, or rather than say, oh, we have to rise above this conflict and find common ground, the lesson for the left is you have to embrace the reality of class conflict 
and and then use it for their political advantage by by arguing that yes this is happening it's unavoidable so we're going to use one the one thing regular people have and they're under a democracy which is their sheer numbers to to enact positive and meaningful change so uh what do you see in in alexandria ocasio cortez and uh and bernie sanders that shows uh shows you that they're they're uh showcasing leadership here on this issue well, there's a couple things. Some of it's rhetorical. Like, you know, in Canada, we often talk about Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders. On some of the issues, they're, they're pushing things we maybe already have in Canada. So on some of the issues, it's not really policy. It's sometimes rhetoric, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, we're going to push X as a policy. But it's Bernie Sanders, for example, in the last uh, primary, back in 2016, basically said, well, what would you say, Bernie, to a, a hedge fund manager that wanted to vote for you? And he said, well, I would recommend him to not vote for me. I would say it's a bad decision for you to vote for me because I don't have your interest at heart, and my goal is to enact a political program that's, that's, that's hostile to your interests. Bernie's like, I'm open about that. And I think on the left in Canada, certainly even within the NDP, there's a reluctance to, to take openly antagonistic position to capital, to say, look, that that 1% not going to vote for us. They're never going to vote for the NDP. And even when the NDP runs relatively moderately, as they did in 2015, you'll still have people like Conrad Black in the National Post saying, well, Justin Trudeau can be trusted, but Tom Mulcair can't. And that was Conrad mm-hmm. Black's words. He endorsed Trudeau in, in effect, at least as a safe choice for the powers that be. Mm-hmm. So the NDP will be targeted no matter what. So what it, it's incumbent upon them to say, look, yeah, we embrace class conflict. You know, we'll talk about things like Mouseland with Tommy Douglas, with the mice and the cats. And mm-hmm. the lesson was that the cats were, were, weren't bad people but they were voting in the interest of cats. The 1% looks after their own. Yep. Um, so the mice, the 99%, need to look after their own, and, 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 and in some ways that's going to be in direct opposition to what the best interests of the elites are. And in terms of policy, there are a couple things. You know, Sanders has talked a little bit about directly going after people, his, uh, his Bezos bill. You know, st- it, was, it was an acronym that basically said stop employers from being subsidized by by food stamps and things like that, but he spelt it out to, to be acronym, acr- uh, an acronym using Bezos, mm-hmm. um, and it was a brilliant tactic, and, and in a sense, it kind of forced uh, Bezos' hand, and he increased the $15, uh, minimum wage to $15 across the entirety of Amazon. And Ocasio-Cortez, of course, has talked about things like a, top, a 70% top marginal tax rate, which we've talked about on the show, but she's also kind of made these general claims that um, you know, billionaires at least in the uh, accompaniment of, of, of people who are, who are suffering, are immoral. Um, and you might extend that to the reality that as long as we have billionaires, we'll never have the equality we need to stop poverty. So she might as well be saying billionaires are immoral in our society. And that kind of language is class conflict, and that's mm-hmm. a good thing. So why do you think the NDP hasn't uh, embraced that? Do we, uh, are Canadians not feeling the, uh, the economic hardship the same way that, that Americans are? Or is it because, um, I mean, yeah, is there just no lane for the NDP to, or that they feel that they can do this right now? Why do you think they, the NDP has been so sort of uh, afraid to embrace this class conflict? Well, you know, it's in recent, you know, and this isn't to say, and as I noted my piece, that you know, none of this would be new for the NDP. In fact, to go back to the 60s or the 70s, American progressives would be looking to the NDP and saying, well, why can't we do that? And, and the reality is that this is not um, absent from the party. It's underemphasized by the party. And this is where they get into this weird you know, space where you know, the National Post and other, and other 
major news sites can look at NDP policies and look at the statements by NDP candidates and find things that are actually quite radical. And then they did they they, they denounce those things as, as Venezuelan communism and and I know you'll talk about the Venezuela issue later on the show, mm-hmm. but but the reality is is that the NDP is not kind of leaning into those policies and say yes we do believe that but you're misrepresenting it. Here's what we actually mean. But instead trying to shy away from those things, it makes them sound like they're almost ashamed of what they believe. Um, in mm. some ways, that's quite important. Other factors do include the fact that you know inequality in the United States uh, is at, at least more public. The, the, the wealthy in the United States are, are wealthier than the wealthy in Canada. They have more wealthy people. Um, you know, they, we have a liberal party here which sort of soaks up a lot of the anger, where in the United States they sort of just have a kind of right-wing Republican Party and a center-right Democratic establishment. Mm-hmm. So when someone like Ocasio-Cortez or Sanders comes along, there really is no alternative to them. And you don't have someone like Justin Trudeau who, again, while ultimately not believing in any of the things he's saying, um, will say them. And, and then and then be very effective at, at saying, okay, we don't need caste conflict. We just need the rich to pitch in a little bit more. And that kind of dulls the conversation a little bit. We've actually not solved anything, right? Yeah. So that's, I think, a bit of the mixture. Uh, but, you know, in Canada, we do have these issues. I mean, one of Canada's richest men just got busted for basically stealing people's bread. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was jacking the price up on bread because his billions weren't enough. And yeah. he tried to cut people some gift cards and to say, oh, well, I guess that's it for, you know, a decade or more of bread theft. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm fine now. And we have, you know, a few rich families in this country that have more more wealth than the entirety of the Maritimes. And so we really could ask that why does why do 40 percent of our provinces have less wealth than a few families? And we could say maybe our inequality isn't so pristine. And then, of course, and this is nothing to say of the indigenous people who face you know, extreme inequality and indignity in this country uh, and while we have a few rich people who, who, be- who benefit from from a society. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we have, the, we have the same kind of crisis here. I just don't know if Canadians see it. Yeah. What I'm noticing a lot right now with the American media is that because of the push from Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders and a few others, there is actual uh, an actual conversation now, like a real conversation about not just the... Um, the, you know, the rhetoric around income inequality, but actual specific policy. So there's been discussions around uh, marginal tax rates, like uh, Ocasio-Cortez is 70% that she mentioned uh, on any wealth made over $10 million. There's been uh, Elizabeth Warren, she introduced a, a wealth tax uh, bill. Um, so I think part of the, the issue too here is that we sort of have this ignorance in the country because there is this media ignorance on the issue. And it, it sort of takes a politician uh, a bold politician to come out and be on television and, and speak to these issues and actually propose real policy. So uh, do you think Jagmeet Singh uh, has the ability to do that? Do, has he shown um, so far in his proposals on what he's discussing any specifics on something that would be bold enough to sort of change the conversation? You know, there's been a couple things. One, one thing he needs to talk more about is his tax plan. And we've talked about it on this show. We've talked about you know, he doesn't want a 70% marginal tax rate, but part of that is when you combine provincial and federal taxes in Canada, they are somewhat higher than the United States. So, um, you know, that it's, it's not comparing apples to apples, but the, he has he talked about increasing corporate taxes, and he has talked about, um, you know, a, a rather large increase to capital gains tax and, and the creation of an estate tax, which while they, you know, they do have in, in many developed countries, Canada does not have an estate tax. So he would create one. And these are, are major policies that maybe even will have more effect than Ocasio-Cortez's 70% top marginal tax rate because, as listeners may not know, you know the, various, well, the very wealthiest don't make most of their income 
through work. They make it through the selling of investments and things mm-hmm. like that. And those aren't taxed the same. In fact, they're taxed less. So, you know, if you work as a teacher and you make $50,000 or you sell $50,000 in stock at a profit, the reality is you're taxed way more on the former than you are the latter, even though through the sweat of your brow and through all those late nights marking, you earned your cash versus just, you know, getting lucky and picking something on the wheel, essentially. Um, but, you know, one thing that has kind of gotten a little bit more attention just in the last couple of weeks has been housing because Jagmeet Singh running in Burnaby South, you know, in B.C., especially southern B.C., there's mm-hmm. a basically there's a, a major housing crisis. And it's not the only part of the country, but it is perhaps where it is most acute. And he's talked about the need for affordable housing, the need to help developers build more housing, but also to look at cooperative and, no, and non-market solutions and some public solutions as well taking a pretty holistic method. And the Liberal Party has tried to respond saying it'll bankrupt developers, and there's been coverage of that. And I think that's gotten the conversation a bit more mainstream. And in some ways, you've saw that, like you know, with Ocasio-Cortez, where, you know, it hasn't been poo-pooed, you know, uh, directly. I mean, people like Paul Krugman have come out and said, well, look, we could talk about the details, but in broad terms, her plan is not unreasonable. Mm -hmm. And it has gotten... You know, some of America's most influential and quote-unquote respectable talking heads to seriously consider her policy. And maybe it doesn't ultimately get implemented, but as we've talked about before, the Overton window has shifted, and now a 70% marginal tax rate on the wealthy in the United States is reasonable public policy, Mm -hmm. even if it's not ultimately going to be implemented. It's possible now. Yeah, just to add to that point, too, there was a, a Fox News headline I saw, and this is something you <laughs> in a million years would not think a, a Fox News headline uh, would say. But uh, the headline is, most voters back Ocasio-Cortez plan to in, to uh, tax richest Americans up to 70 percent. And they were citing a, a Hill-Harris-X survey where 59 percent of registered voters support the idea of taxing the richest Americans up to 70 percent. So these, these are ideas where... Uh, people underestimate how much power they have, not just you know with a with a progressive base or you know a, a, a labor movement, but with, with actual with, with voters all across the board. I mean, conservative voters are fully aware of of the corruption and and the uh, the income inequality and how much income and or how much wealth and power is concentrated to the top. I mean, everyone is aware of this, but it takes a, a bold politician and bold messaging to be able to you know call that out. And I think. I think Jagmeet Singh has the has the potential here to do that. I think I mean half the problem is he's not the opposition, so he doesn't get as much screen time as say you know um, Ashir does. But there is a, a potential there, and I and it's something that I, I mean I'm just I'm craving our own you know Ocasio Cortez or Sanders, somebody who is going to kind of come out there and, and inspire people. And, and I feel like Jagmeet Singh has the potential to do that. I just ha- haven't haven't quite seen it yet. But um. Yeah, there's yeah. a couple of challenges. One, one Ocasio-Cortez, you do have to kind of see her. She is a relatively new figure. She's not a leader. And I'm not suggesting that she's not being genuine. But, you know, you can't speak with a certain freedom as a rookie congresswoman. Mm-hmm. That you can't as, like, Nancy Pelosi, even if she believed what Ocasio-Cortez believed, wouldn't be in the position to be so frank. You have, there's different levels of, of, of how you speak. And the leader of a party does have those certain restraints. Although, maybe not as much as what's needed. But what you raise is an excellent point. The idea is... Progressive policies are popular. They're popular with the vast majority of the population. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the eternal struggles with the NDP is that if you look at what most of our policies are, things like dental care, things like pharmacare, things like, you know, better assistance for seniors and better assistance for for low-income families, most of these things pull very well. 
they pull very well. Or maybe they, maybe the population's divided, but it's divided 50-50, even though the NDP maybe gets 20% of the vote. So the reality is that these policies are popular, and it has to be underlined that the day Trump won, the day, the day Trump became president, states all over the country voted for higher minimum wages. They legalized marijuana. They passed a whole series of progressive voter amendments. Mm-hmm. Again, in the same day they elected Trump. So some people, probably more than we think, went into that ballot box and voted for Trump and then voted for a higher minimum wage. Yeah, totally. Now we can scratch our heads about that and, and, and say, yeah, it probably is a little weird. We know Trump lied to voters. Frankly, he did. He, he misled a lot of working-class voters about his intentions. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that, that progressive policies are popular even amongst people who don't vote for progressives. And, and there has to be a discussion, I suppose, about how we unlock that key. Again, this is the challenge with the NDP in this last provincial election. Andrea Holmes did run on progressive policy. She did run on a very ambitious program. And for one reason or another, whether it was logistical issues, I think that was more of the challenge because the policies were popular. Yeah. Not all of them not all of them universally, but most of them quite popular. And and I think that's the lesson. Um, there's nothing wrong with the vision. Maybe it's the execution that needs work. Yeah. And all we have to do is look back to I mean as I said uh, uh, at the beginning, FDR. So FDR was the most popular president in American history. He's the only president to serve more than two terms. He served four terms. And he, he's so popular that they had to institute term limits. And this is a guy that he embraced class conflict. And because of pressure from from labor organizers, he he actually pushed a, a, a new deal and moved to bring um, America into a new age. And just uh, going off of that, somebody that I see as, as the modern-day FDR, Bernie Sanders. So uh, to end on here, what are, you, what are your thoughts about a potential uh, Bernie 2020 run? And do you think uh, America this time is ready to, uh, to make him the, the nominee? Oh, it's good. That's a, the latter part's a, a tricky one. I mean, I, I like Bernie Sanders. I'm a big fan. If I was an American, if I was eligible to vote, um, he, would, he would almost certainly get my, my, my vote, at least right now. He certainly would have gotten in 2016. I think it's fantastic that he's, that he's very likely to run again. I think he's going to bring a really good discussion. And I think one thing that it's tricky, it might hurt him in his ability to win, but it's probably going to help him in the promotion of his ideas is that he has somebody like Elizabeth Warren running alongside him. And she's going to speak in some similar terms. And maybe that mm-hmm. splits some of their support. Because one of the issues right now is that the, the Democrats use a proportional system. You get delegates based on how many votes you get. But if you don't get 15%, you get none. And there's been a really good discussion. Nate Silver mentioned that California is an early primary. And California is an early primary where Kamala Harris could probably be expected to do reasonably well. Mm-hmm. And if only one or two delegates gets above 15% because there's 10 or 11 people in the field, it could be the case that those delegates effectively can run away early in the primaries just with California and maybe Texas alone. Mm-hmm. So the game is different this time with uh, a 12-person race potentially versus a you know, yeah. a, a three-person race in the Democrats where Martin Umberley very quickly kind of faded away, yeah. and it became a two-person contest. So in terms of the, the delegate math, you know, Bernie's still going to face difficulties. He's going to face difficulties in places like South Carolina, but the reality is that um, I, think, I think young people still believe in his message. Bernie is still effectively the most popular politician in America, um, and I think he's got a shot. I think he's got a shot, and I think a lot of people who – who, who thought, well, man, he couldn't win in 2016, maybe think, well, this is the only guy we have that could beat somebody as irregular as Trump. So 
I'm interested to see what happens, that's for sure. Yep, I'm with you. Christo Avalis is a postdoctoral fellow in the History Department at the University of Toronto with writing credits in Maclean's, the, Glo- the Globe and Mail, and the Washington Post, and the author of the piece titled The Lesson Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders Have for the Left, Embrace Class Conflict, which you can read on CanadianDimension.com. Christo, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, how conservative and liberal media have both misled you on Venezuela. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. The David Dole Show continues on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. What is happening in Venezuela? Now, if you really want to get into it, I have a 24-minute breakdown on my website, therationalnational.com. But uh, don't worry, I'm not going to go 24 minutes on Venezuela today. (laughs) But uh, I will try to give you a top-level explanation. And look, both conservatives and liberals, um, for pretty much the same reason have have been mis uh, misleading people either intentionally or in, or unintentionally on on what is going on in Venezuela. So let me try and and break it down for you. So right now there is an ongoing US and Canadian backed coup in Venezuela. So the guy they're backing is Juan Guaido, Venezuela's opposition leader who declared himself the interim president over current leader Nicolas Maduro, the country's leader since 2013. Now um as I said, both liberals and conservatives, uh, media are, and politicians are saying the same thing, that it's socialism and we have to go and save them because socialism is crazy. Uh, without giving any real context on what is, what is actually going on there. So first, 90%, 90% of Venezuela's economy is dependent on oil exports. Now, you can imagine that didn't go too well when uh, Saudi Arabia undercut the market in 2014, which is when the economy in Venezuela began to collapse. And uh, of course, Venezuela's leader, Nicolas Maduro, does have dictator tendencies. Uh, the elections he uh, recently won last year were not clean. And um, But all that said, so look, there is a lot of blame you can put on the leader in Venezuela. But understand here that the sanctions put on Venezuela by Western countries like uh, the U.S. and Canada have been negatively impacting the poor and the middle class there the most and has led to hyperinflation, making the situation even worse. So why exactly is Canada and the U.S. doing this? Well, let me just, uh, (laughs) you may not be surprised to find out that Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. Now, is this a conspiracy? Oh, am I, you know, just, am I playing the, the role of someone like Alex Jones here and saying, oh, all these people are in cahoots. They're all into it. Let's look at a tweet from Republican Senator Marco Rubio a couple of days ago, essentially admitting that this is all about oil, that they are literally backing regime change in Venezuela because they want the oil. This is his tweet. Quote, biggest buyers of Venezuelan oil are Valero Energy and Chevron. Refining heavy crude from Venezuela supports great jobs in Gulf Coast. For the sake of these U.S. workers, I hope they will begin working with administration of President Guaido and cut off illegitimate Maduro regime. So it's right out in the open. This is over oil. 
So all of the uh, the money made off oil in Venezuela was going to the people there. So again, as I said, 90% of the economy there was dependent on, on oil exports. That's clearly a, you know, a terrible way to, to run an economy. But understand that, I mean, private companies, private interests had no access to that oil. Now under uh, Guaido, they, they will if they are successful with this coup. So the most important question here, though, is not, is Maduro a, a bad leader in Venezuela? The most important question is, will a U.S.-backed coup lead to a better life for Venezuelans? So what does history tell us? History shows us that no. So a Washington Post analysis by Lindsay O'Rourke, who's the uh, assistant professor of international politics at Boston College, found that, quote, between 1947 and 1989, the U.S. Tried to, uh, tried to change other nations' governments 72 times. 72 times. So again, this is between 1947 and 1989. The U.S. tried to change other nations' governments 72 times. Now, this is in an era where American media is freaking out about Russian interference in their elections. Yet here they are at the very same time interfering in Venezuela's government. They're interfering in someone, in someone else's leadership. So uh, another quote here from Lindsay O'Rourke of the Washington Post. My research found that after a nation's government was toppled, it was less democratic and more likely to suffer civil war, domestic instability, and mass killing. At the very least, citizens lost faith in their governments. Now, we don't really have to even go back to, you know, 89 or before that to, to look at all the issues that U.S. Uh, regime change or backed regime change has caused. Just look at recent disasters like Libya or Iraq. So Saddam Hussein was definitely a terrible dictator. But even conservatives today now admit that the Iraq war was a mistake. So to this is my 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 real issue here. It's one thing if you if you back this coup, if you support it, but for the media to not mention any of this when reporting on Venezuela, that's the problem that I have here. So any reports you see, I mean, any mainstream uh, media reports or any any uh, news reports on television, isn't it funny how none of them mention the the failure of U.S. backed regime change uh, of, of the seventy two times or seventy two plus times that the U.S. has tried to, to uh, meddle in, in other countries' uh, elections. Why is that never mentioned? And again, the irony of a country so worried about foreign interference, literally interfering in another country's politics. Now, on top of this, this is, so, with the U.S., we're sort of used to it. But Canada here has actually been instrumental in this coup. So this is a quote from a report in the Canadian press, which, I mean... When reading this report, they don't even acknowledge how how crazy this is. It's just sort of, you know, typical reporting. This is just like, like it's all just normal. But here's a, a quote from the Canadian press piece on this. Uh, Emboldening Venezuela's opposition has been a labor of months. The Canadian press has learned. Canadian diplomats in, a, uh, in Venezuela with their Latin American counterparts work to get the country's opposition parties to coalesce behind the one person who emerged strong enough to stand against Maduro, 35-year-old Guaido. So Canada has actually been instrumental in this coup, which I feel like is a position that 
you know, us as Canadians are not often in, at least in terms of our awareness of, of what is going on. But we are essentially following the American lead here in in uh, interfering in foreign governments. Now, uh, Uruguay and Mexico are two countries that are staying out of it and are actually uh, not necessarily backing Maduro, but want to see um, uh, open and, and, and fair elections uh, in the nation but are, are definitely not backing uh, Guaido. And they're taking the approach that all of us should be taking, that Canada and the U.S. should be taking, a non-interventionalist approach. So we do luckily have some uh, MPs in this country that are against this. So uh, NDP MP Nikki Ashton tweeted out, Prime Minister Trudeau sides with Trump's regime change agenda and Brazil's fascist president in support of someone calling for a military coup in Venezuela. No. We cannot support an agenda of economic or military coups. Hands off Venezuela. So there's at least some awareness uh, in Canada about this. But, I mean, by and large, especially when you, when you see media reports on this, very little is discussed about the history of U.S.-backed regime change, the failure of U.S.-backed regime change. And uh, before I get off this topic and, and, and go to break here, I have to mention, too, so... Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro is Brazil's new fascist uh, leader, which Trudeau has said literally nothing about. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because Lula da Silva, who was by far the most popular candidate in the Brazilian uh, election and, and was the leader of Brazil, he was jailed by a judge in Brazil on trumped up corruption charges. Now, that judge... That judge that sentenced Lula to jail, who, who would have won the election in Brazil, a very popular candidate, he was sent to jail by Bolsonaro's now justice minister. So this judge put Lula in jail and then became Bolsonaro's justice minister. And what has Trudeau, uh, Trudeau said about it? Absolutely nothing. It on Venezuela, where we have actually added to the hyperinflation and the issues there for the people on the ground. We're going in and helping this coup. Coming up next, how Doug Ford's changes to student loans will negatively impact not just students, but everyone. And if you are feeling this, give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. You're listening to The David Dole Show, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. The Doug Ford government has announced cuts to post-secondary education that will leave students more indebted, make it tougher to qualify for student grants, and impact the work done by student unions. Now, if you are one of these students or you're somehow being impacted by this, give me a call at 416-872-1010, or you can also text me at 71010. Now, before I get into the details, I want to give some sort of some top-level uh, stats here. So tuition fees have more than tripled since 2001. 40% of Canadian students are food insecure, and uh, in Ontario, average tuition fees sit around $9,000 per year, with the average student debt for an Ontario student uh, being at $27,000. Now, I have some personal experience with this. I had 
or I was in student debt. I I had an OSAP loan um, totaling about thirty grand. Uh, I eventually paid it off. Uh, actually, I think last year I did, um, and that was through a combination of uh, my own money, help from my parents, and uh, and grants. Now, most people aren't that lucky. Most people are stuck paying back that thirty grand or more completely by themselves, but. I was able to to pay this off. I mean, in part because of help from family, but also because of grants. So, I, I this is the one of these things that it it's so it it bothers me so <laughs> it bothers me a lot because it's one of these issues that people they tend to forget about. Like once they're out of college, once they pay off their debt, it's like people stop caring about college students. They, they stop worrying about oh yeah sure you guys have it hard you'll be fine. But no, I mean, it's a lot worse now than it ever was. People have to understand that. So even if you aren't a college student, also understand how this can impact your life. So I have so many, there's so many points I would like to, I would love to get to here. But people have to understand, before I even get to more of the Stuck Ford stuff. So student loan debt doesn't just affect students. It affects parents. It affects those uh, students' ability to start a family buy a house, spending, and ultimately the entire economy. So when you are stuck paying back thousands and thousands of dollars of debt, and then you wonder why millennials can't buy a house, or <laughs> one Economist uh, article I saw was, why aren't millennials buying diamonds? I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous. People don't understand how much pressure millennials are under. So... Uh, I want to hit on one major point here in this in this Doug Ford uh, in, in what he's doing here to tuition. So <laughs> they couldn't even spin the quote about uh, a six month grace period. So just three main points: there are going to be more loans and fewer grants for Ontario students. Funding for student unions are now optional, meaning students have less ability to actually impact policy. And they're getting rid of the six-month grace period. Now, I have to read the quote here from the Ontario government about getting rid of the six-month grace period because it's it's hilarious. So this is off their website. Quote, align Ontario, uh, the changes will align Ontario's repayment terms with that of the federal government by charging interest during the six-month uh, six grace period to reduce complexity for students. So <laughs> their, their, their spin on getting rid of the six-month grace period is that it reduces complexity for students. I mean, this shows you how absurd this is. They know there is no way to spin this. So, I mean, if you don't understand, this means now once you graduate, immediately you have to pay back your loans. You, you start, you start uh, getting interest on, on those loans immediately. So there used to be a, a six-month grace period where you had some time to actually find a job and be, able, and be able to pay back those loans, but not anymore. But thank God, they are now reducing complexity. So that somehow makes it better for all those students. So once again, Doug Ford continues his phony for the people talking points while making everything more expensive for the people. Coming up next, Maxime Bernier says his People's Party will do nothing on climate change without realizing how that will negatively impact an issue that his supporters care so much about. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.
Welcome back to the David Dole Show on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Before I get to uh, Maxime Bernier here, I want to just read a, a text message I got in saying uh, someone needs to, or saying that we need to get rid of Doug Ford, who pretends to be uh, for the people, but he only helps uh, rich business buddies. Yeah, uh, I, I'm i totally with you. And I think people are, are slowly, slowly waking up. I mean, <laughs> like that spin that I read in the last segment where they're trying to spin the, the six-month grace period uh, or getting rid of that. I mean, it's it's at this point, it's almost, you know, in your face. But uh, Maxime Bernier. So last year, Maxime Bernier left the Conservative Party to form the People's Party of Canada. Now, we've heard uh, a bit from him here and there, but we haven't heard too much about his plans for climate change. But last week, Evan Sullivan interviewed Maxime Bernier on CTV's question period, where he said this. Okay, so your party, your party would do nothing. Your party would do nothing on it. That's the answer. On, my party will do nothing on climate change because environment, it's a shared jurisdiction and provinces, they have program for that. And, and so I'll let provinces decide what they're going to do to fight climate change. Yes, you're right. Now, this answer, honestly, I think it may sound appealing to some people. You, you, may, you may hear that and think, yeah, I mean, why can't provinces just, why can't I just be up to them? But here's the reality. Climate change requires unified action to make actual progress. Now, why should Maxime Bernier care about this? Even if Maxime Bernier <laughs> doesn't care about this, and I don't think he, he cares about climate change, but he does care about migrants. He cares about immigrants coming into the country and in his mind, in his view, changing the culture of Canada. So, how are migrants or how are immigrants and climate change connected? Well, studies prove what should already be obvious. Higher temperatures increase the number of people seeking asylum. So a Columbia University study uh, titled Asylum Applications Respond to Temperature Fluctuations found that uh, our researchers, uh, researchers identified 103 countries that contributed to asylum applications to the European Union. Collectively, these nations submitted 350,000 applications to the EU per year. The authors combed the weather histories from these 103 source sites and explored how the weather varied in the 2000 to 2014 time period. And they found that when temperatures in agricultural areas and seasons at the source countries varied away from an optimal uh, value of about 20 degrees Celsius, the number of people seeking asylum increased. And the increase wasn't just proportional. They found it was nonlinear, meaning that initial increases in temperature only mildly changed the asylum application numbers. But as temperatures varied more and more, the number of seekers increased more quickly. So using a collection of climate models that are able to predict Earth's future climate, the authors estimated that on a business-as-usual emissions pathway, where countries don't meaningfully reduce uh, greenhouse gases, asylum applications will increase by almost 200% by the end of the century. On the other hand, under a modest warming scenario, where humans take some meaningful action to reduce emissions, the increase falls to about 30%. Now, we, we see the, the effects of this directly today. So the Syrian refugee crisis is grounded and a severe drought that impacted farmers and led to serious economic and social conflict. So a lot of people don't realize because 
again, this a lot of this is on the media. I mean, the media, sh- every time Syria comes up, it should be mentioned that, hey, this all started because of climate change. This all started because of a massive drought that created this, this economic uh, and social conflict. But it's not brought up. So more and more people don't realize it. So even when a leader of a party like Maxime Bernier talks about climate change, he has no idea that that um, climate change is impacting an issue that he cares so much about. I mean, and it's <laughs> it's part of the reason people have dubbed his party the white people's party, because he is so focused on this this issue of of uh, of culture and how Canadian culture is changing. I mean, over the years, our culture has evolved based on who is in it. I mean, <laughs> if you go back 60 years or, or 70, 80 years, there, were a, there was a lot less uh, Italian restaurants and, and Portuguese people. But there was a time when Italians and, and, and Portuguese were, were the other. They were the new, uh, the new people coming into our country and, and changing the culture. So understand, this is just how our country has evolved. The, the whole cultural thing, really, it bugs me when um, Brene is so focused on it because I, it's, I don't think it's an issue at all, at all. But at the very least, if he actually does care about that issue, then he should also be focused on climate change as climate change is the leading cause of the migrant crisis. Now, luckily, um, or I mean, unluckily, <laughs> depending on, on what side you are with, with Bernier, I, I, he's, there's not much hope for this People's Party. Now, look, I may be proven wrong. Um, there is potential there. I know he wants to run candidates in, in every riding. Uh, whether or not he'll be able to do that, I don't know. Uh, I think he will be able to take some of the... Um, some of the base away from Andrew Scheer and the conservatives. So ultimately, I don't see much of a future for, uh, uh, at least not in, in uh, for this election this year. But um, yeah, I don't see much of a future for the People's Party uh, and their turnout this year. But look, if he's able to grab maybe one or two seats, I mean, who knows? And especially if, if that potentially leads to a, a collapse in the actual conservative party, then we're going to see another Trudeau majority. So this is one of these issues where we haven't really, uh, Canadians haven't experienced uh, a real shift in our, in our politics for a while. So this is a time now where we're not only going to have three parties that are essentially on the left with the the liberals, the NDP and uh, the Greens, though I would argue the liberals are not really a left-wing party. But uh, we're also going to see now the conservatives and the People's Party going after the same base. So in that scenario where you have two major or three major left-wing parties and two right-wing parties, I mean, this may be a real shakeup to to our, our politics. And, you know may bring about some real change that we actually need, not just in terms of uh, who is representing us, but in terms of the actual discussion around real policy issues. You can follow me on Twitter at David Dole, last name spelled D-O-E-L, and visit me on YouTube at therationalnational.com. Thanks for listening to The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010.